Welcome to the StoryCraft Cafe. Come in, grab a cup of your favorite beverage, and get ready to join the storytelling conversation. StoryCraft Cafe is brought to you by Dabble, the ultimate cloud-based fiction writing software. Here we're going to bring together storytellers from all walks to encourage and empower you to craft your best story. Thanks for joining us again here in the StoryCraft Cafe. We've got an amazing show for you today with Brad Thor, author of 22 books in the Scott Harvath series. We have a wide-ranging discussion, and if you are a writer, you definitely want to take notes on this episode. Join us over at StoryCraft.Cafe so that you can be notified of upcoming events and live author hangouts that we have all throughout the week storycraft.cafe thank you to dabble as always for making this podcast possible now on to our show with brad and we are live here in the storycraft cafe i am your host hank garner today one of my all-time favorite guys to get to hang out with uh brad thor what, what can you say? This is Harvath book 22. Uh, yep. Just just dropped uh, a couple of days ago. Deadfall is the name of the book. You did it again, Brad. I don't know how you keep doing it, but you did it again. Um, welcome back to the show. I'm touched. Thank you. And thanks for having me back, Hank. Oh, you're, you're so welcome. Um, you know... 22 books in a series that that one is is quite the feat quite an accomplishment um but you have managed to do something that i think a lot of writers uh hope to do wish they could do and that is create a series with so many entry points you know if if a reader discovered you today they could start with deadfall Um, have a fantastic experience with the book. Um, There are other things that they could glean from the character and some of the supporting characters, you know, if they go back and read and it enhances the experience, but it in no way breaks the experience if they don't read them in order. Um, Is that something that you have done on purpose throughout the series? Did did you intend for there to be so many entry points for readers? Yeah, absolutely. And that was on the advice of my editor. You know, she didn't want somebody to go to the store and say, well, they've got this in the bookstore, but they I need to start here. And so I can't read out of order. The best way to phrase it is I tell people that my novels are like the James Bond movies. You don't need to have ever seen a James Bond movie to go to your local theater and see the latest one. Uh, So that is the idea. Now you'll get purists that want to go back and start at the beginning and that's fine, but it's designed so that you could, if you haven't read a Brad Thor thriller before, I want you to jump in with Deadfall and uh, hopefully I'll win you over and you'll want to go back and read the other ones. But yeah, I mean, it's a brand new book and and I want everybody to read the brand new book. Yeah. Is is there shade and color that, that people will pick up by going back and reading the previous works or are there things that they'll take from those stories that eventually will enhance their experience or uh, is it, is it purposefully like James Bond? Yeah, I, well, it's not. I mean, Harvath has Harvath has held a lot of different positions over his career, uh, kind of going out and chasing bad guys. So you may get that, but you get 
the essence of Harvath, every single book, you know, what drives him, how he got to where he is and that kind of a thing. So I make sure that you're not missing anything. Uh, and it's, so it's hard for me to say as the author that you'd be any better off having read the other ones first. Uh, but I do have a lot of readers that, uh, that are purists and want to start at the beginning. And then I've got other people who are like, no, that's what I love about the books. I can start anywhere. So <laughs> it's, it's really, it really is a personal preference thing in what I like in what I do, Hank, to, I only own a big amusement park. I am the Walt Disney of the thriller world. And every year I am opening a new ride. That's the new book, you know, and you may be a log flume guy and you still love the log flume that I opened five years ago. And that's your favorite. You love the new roller coaster, but man, that log flume is always going to be your favorite. And that's like having kids. I mean, imagine having 22 yeah. kids, you know, I'm sure you'd have a couple. You weren't, uh, <laughs> you, you, you read once and you, 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 they're good kids. You love them. They're your kids. I mean, I don't have any favorites in this. So every year I'm trying to raise the bar and get better as an author. And as you and I have discussed before, I don't work for Simon and Schuster. I work for you. I work for the readers. Those are the people that keep me employed. So when they go to Goodreads or Amazon and leave their, uh, those, those five stars, that's my annual performance review. And I want to get those five stars and I want to earn those five stars. And I think that's why I've, you know, I've got 23 books overall because I did a spinoff series one year with with the Athena project. So uh, it is, it's practically unheard of to still have that many books in print as well, that the books are selling well enough that your publisher keeps them in the marketplace. So I'm very fortunate to have the career that I do. And that's only made possible by my wonderful employers, the readers. Yeah. Well, since, since you uh, brought up the subject of, of being uh, an entertainer of sorts and working for your customer, the reader. Um, we've talked about this before, the the fact that that you are here for the reader. Uh, what happens, though, when you have a book like uh, Deadfall, where there are some dicey subjects, um, shall oh, we say, where the public is... Um, is not 100% sold on a particular worldview. And, and I think you know exactly what I'm talking I, about. I, I got you. I can, I can finish it for you if you want me to finish the question. But yeah, I mean, so, so what happens when you bump up against those tough topics? All right. So uh, just to flesh it out for the viewer, the listener to this podcast, uh, this book, Deadfall, an American citizen has gotten has disappeared behind enemy lines in Ukraine. This is a woman who was doing some charitable good works in the country, decided to risk being there. She knew the risks and she disappears. The United States does not know if she is alive or dead. They, they're they worried that she's been uh, taken hostage by a rogue uh, unit of the Wagner Group, the real-life Russian uh, mercenary organization. And they can't, com- the United States can't commit troops because then Russia will say, we're at war with the United States. And so my protagonist, Scott Harvath, uh, who they can deny any knowledge of, gets sent over and they say, find this woman and kill everyone responsible for taking her, whether she's alive or dead. We want her back and we want you to kill everybody responsible. So what I did in the book is, listen, just as a just as an added table setter, I grew up reading these great World War II thrillers. I loved Alistair yeah. McLean. Uh, Where Eagles Dare is a great book. It's a great movie with Richard Burton and Clint Eastwood. Uh, I loved all that kind of stuff. And I always wanted Harvath to have one of those World War II style adventures. But Harvath lives in 2023. I can't 
send him back in time to go to World War II. But when Russia invaded Ukraine, all of these bells started going off in my head. Uh, now, what's interesting is in real life, at the end uh, of the Soviet Union, when it collapsed, a third of their nuclear arsenal was in Ukraine. This is real life. Yeah. And we freaked out in the United States. The United yes, States government was worried that either a rogue nation or some sort of bad actor like a terrorist organization might be able to steal these nuclear weapons and use them against us, like light one off in uh, in Houston or Miami or New York or San Francisco, Chicago. We didn't want that to happen. And so we went to the Ukrainians and we said, listen, we want to help you dismantle all these nukes. We've got experts, professionals to help you take them apart and we'll take them off your hands. And we'll make sure that they are properly dealt with. And Ukraine said to us, we will only do it if you can guarantee that by giving up our nuclear weapons, we will never lose an inch of sovereign territory. And we said, OK. And a memorandum was created called the Budapest Memorandum. And we signed it. And the Ukrainians said, now go get the Russians to sign it. Now, this is 1990s. This is pre Vladimir Putin and the Russians signed it. So fast forward to 2014, Putin invades Ukraine and slices off the eastern part, the Donbass, and takes the Crimean Peninsula. And this is very similar to what happened in the run up to World War II, where Hitler went into the Sudetenland in Czechoslovakia, used the same excuse Putin did. I'm just protecting for Hitler ethnic Germans. And, and right. uh, that's what Hitler said. And Putin said ethnic Russians, Russian speaking people. It was the same excuse. And in the run up to World War II, fascist Italy, the Republic of France and the United Kingdom via Neville Chamberlain, peace in our time, he was waving this paper around, let Hitler do it. We, on the other hand, did a very similar thing, which is we let Putin do it in Ukraine. And uh, there were some consequences. He got kicked out of what was then the G8. We now have a G7 because the members kicked Putin out for that. There were a few sanctions and a harshly worded letter from the Obama administration. That was it. And just like Hitler didn't have his thirst for conquest slaked by being handed a slice of Czechoslovakia, Putin didn't have his thirst for conquest quenched by being handed a slice of Ukraine. So when I look at this as an American, I think we ought to honor our obligations. So I get it. There are people that don't want us involved in Ukraine. There are other people that think we should. We made a promise to the Ukrainians and we did not live up to it in 2014. And I don't think any nation should invade another nation. Like I'm from Chicago. I live in Nashville now, but I'm from Chicago. It's one of the most corrupt cities in the United States. If a Republican mayor was elected tomorrow. There hasn't been one in over a hundred years. There'd still be corruption in Chicago. Ukraine has corruption. There's no question. They were a Soviet, they were part of the Soviet Union forever. That corruption is in their DNA the way it is in Chicago. But I don't want somebody coming down from Canada and stealing Chicago and saying, because it's corrupt, they're allowed to take it. So but I understand the different points of view, right? So my job is to entertain you. I'm not trying to change your mind. You can feel however you want. And so to get round back to your to your question, Hank, what I did was is I put in different characters with different points of view on what we should or shouldn't be doing in Ukraine. And I didn't take a position. I let these characters say, well, this is why we should be involved. This is why we shouldn't be involved. So I tried to strike a fair and even balance for the readers, because at the end of the day, I want you to have a great white knuckle thrill ride. This for me is not a book about Ukraine. 
This is me being able to put Harvath into my own version of Saving Private Ryan meets Band of Brothers meets Fury with Brad Pitt meets The Monuments Men with uh, George Clooney and John Goodman. Right. That's what I'm doing with this book. So with a uh, a topic that is such a current um, hot button issue and and we all are familiar with how the um, the book process goes. You know, the, you you for months write the book and then you go into edits and then the machinery of publishing gets involved and it's months more down the road before the book gets published and then, you know, gets out to the public. When you take a stance on or not a stance, but when you use a current event that is so um of the moment, uh, is there fear that that this is all going to be resolved before the writing of the book happens? And you know, how do you kind of weigh out whether to step yeah. into those waters or or not? So it's good. I, you know, I never wrote about bin Laden because I knew bin Laden would eventually be killed or captured. There was no way it wasn't going to happen. So I didn't want to put him in a book and then have the book be basically like, well, you know how this ends kind of a thing, Bin Laden's going to be dead. So I never wrote about him. Never. I'm creating a fictional world. So, uh, I, I set it against the Ukrainian war, but I wanted it to be a war story that would stand the test of time. Uh, one of my favorite nonfiction books is by Eric Larson and it's in the garden of beasts. And it's all about how no American citizen wanted to be the U.S. ambassador to Germany. But they found this professor from the University of Chicago who was really this pie-eyed idealist who had no idea what he was getting into. I mean, this guy was clueless and he took the job because nobody else wanted it. And he went over, moved to Berlin. And it's a fascinating book about how the war was unfolding, how reporters were not reporting on what the Nazis were doing. American reporters were kind of uh, sugarcoating things and not it's the real story. Wasn't getting back to the citizens in the United States. And it started getting worse, started getting worse. And you see this ambassador, his eyes started opening it, not wider and wider, but he started to be less naive and started to realize what was going on. I know how World War II ends, but it was such a great story. It was such a great take on a, on a slice of this. And it's, it's, uh, it was recreated from his diary entries and letters and first person accounts and that kind of a thing. I think if you write a great story, uh, it'll stand the test of time. And that's what I feel I've done in Deadfall, that this is going to remain a great story long after the Ukrainian war is, is over. You know, my biggest fear, my biggest fear was something nuclear happening uh, in real life. That is, that remains a big fear of mine just because I think it would be devastating for that region. Uh, my professional fear in the book was, is that would throw the whole story, whether it was one of the power plants melting down or, you know, being shelled or the electricity being cut off and they aren't able to cool the reactor down to a tactical battlefield nuke being lit up somewhere, uh, in Ukraine that didn't happen. Thank goodness. I don't ever want to see that happen, but yeah. that was, you're right. That was playing in the back of my mind. How does the book stand if something like that happens? Uh, but I feel the way I've done it, throwing Harvath into the thick of battle in these interesting villages and things like that in Ukraine, I think you could read this book 10 or 15 years from now and still have a great, really exciting thrill ride. Yeah. One of the first conversations we ever had, Brad, you told me this story um, and please correct me if if I don't get the details right. But you were on your honeymoon with your wife and you had a conversation about 
things that you did not want to regret? Um, you didn't want to be on your deathbed. What was the one thing I would regret on my deathbed never having done? And you wanted to, to write a novel and and publish Mm -hmm. it. And, um, and you made good on, and and through that conversation, it kind of changed the trajectory of your life for uh, obvious reasons. 22 books in now. Um, I think you've, you've, are able to check that off the, uh, the bucket list. Has that conversation with your wife changed? It's a good, good question. You know what? We have not talked about that. We're about to send our youngest off to college, uh, in a, in a few weeks, and then we're going to be empty nesters. And, uh, I, Empty nesting it, is amazing, by the way. Is that you speak? You speak out of experience. I take I, I speak it. Out of experience. Listen, I'm I'm excited uh, about doing it. I, I don't know who I'm going to crack my dad jokes to. That's that's probably one of the sadder parts of this. Is I won't have an to, audience. You need to find a young man that you can mentor, a and young crack, father, yes. crack dad jokes to. Yes. Okay. Well, that's what I will I will set set out to do. That. <laughs> um, you know, part of the reason I became an author was. Let me back up. I love international travel. It is one of my favorite things. I was a, I was a travel show host before I became an author, traveled a ton with my wife, uh, before we had kids and we never seemed to be able to work the summer schedules for the kids to have them out of the house, uh, other than sleepovers at friends' houses. My wife was not a send the kids to sleepaway camp kind of a parent. And I was cool with that. You know, you don't, it's, it's fine. Um, but now they're going to be gone. And what's great for me is, is that as long as I have my laptop, I can be anywhere in the world. Yeah. So I can go back to Greece where I lived before. I could go to Paris where I've lived before and went to school and I can write from there. So I'm kind of excited uh, about this next chapter of my life and how it'll be reflected in my writing. What will it be like if I can take my laptop with me finally and go for more than just a short vacation, go and actually park myself someplace for a month or two. Uh, so we have not had a conversation about anything changing other than the venue changing, if you will. So yeah. we're going to see what happens. Love it. Um, speaking of that travel show, um, I ran across some clips from your old travel show, like on YouTube or something a while back. And yeah. I think what some people might be surprised by when, when they uh, know the books that you write and, you know, the, the kind of uh, venue that you operate in was uh, how much fun and levity you injected into those segments of that travel show. And um, I think that that shows in the books that you write. Um, some people might, you know, think of these geopolitical thrillers and, you know, think that they're all serious, but there's a lot of fun. There's a lot of levity in your books. They're not just, um, you know, practical jokes and, and knee slappers, but y- you do find a way to, you um, to kind of inject your sparkle eyed view of the world into your writing. Um, is that something that, that you do on purpose? Is that just part of your bubbly personality that infuses in your writing? <laughs> You know what? Listen, I am a sunny Reagan optimist. I always have been. Uh, and a lot of the guys, men and women that I know that are out there doing some of the 
the nation's most dangerous business have a certain graveyard humor to them. You, you need it to survive. You're seeing the worst of mankind when you're out there, uh, you know, dealing with the enemy and things like this. So a certain sense of humor is, is necessary. I think it's good to inject a little levity uh, on occasion. You don't want to turn it into a caper novel, right. but there is a certain amount of, uh, of lightheartedness that does play out in the field where appropriate, obviously not in the middle of gunfights and things like that. In Denfall, I have a running joke about javelins, uh, like, constantly people trying to get their hands on javelin missiles and it's a it is a recurrent thing in there everybody wants javelins right. uh and it sounds a little bit weird out of context now but when you read deadfall you'll get it and you'll be like okay yeah yeah i see what he means about the javelins so i, I think it's part of what makes the character of Scott Harvath attractive in that he can be intense and serious when he needs to be. And then he also has a lighthearted side. I think that makes him a well-rounded character, makes him interesting. It makes him interesting for me. Uh, and I think in the natural ebb and flow of a story, uh, it can't just all be really, really heavy dagger in the heart kind of stuff. I think uh, an appropriate amount of a sense of humor, appropriate amount of levity here and there is 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 good but that's this is where you're the chef right you have to decide what seasoning the food needs at what stage uh so you can overdo the cumin you can overdo the the red chili uh flakes so you really that's part of the art here is is figuring out where and when and how much of any ingredient to put in a novel whoops yeah um you are famously a pantser uh, in your, mm -hmm. in your writing, uh, style, uh, that, that might surprise people who think of your books as very well plotted and that there's, uh, you know, that there's constant twists and turns and, and you must plan these out in advance to, um, you know, a, a friend of mine, um, tells me he, he is a hardcore, um, uh, outliner and and he tells me all the time because i'm not so much um he says well the fact is that everyone is an outliner it's just are you going to outline before you write or are you going to outline after you write where then you take the jumbled mess that you've come up with and you know fit it into he's some wrong. plan he's wrong he's maybe a lovely man but i think he's wrong <laughs> to be honest with you. Uh, so uh, ITW, the international thriller writers just yeah. had uh, a post on Instagram. I saw like in the last 24, 48 hours, and I forget who the author was. And he talked about, it. he was a pantser. And yeah. so they just had this post and he was talking about outlining versus not outlining. And uh, he said something that really rang true with me and no offense to outliners. He said, but you really don't know what the story is going to be when you outline and you're kind of confining yourself to an outline versus letting the story lead the way. And I could make arguments pro pro and con against that, but uh, I, I don't have a jumbled mess at the end. The, the story, I, I always tell people, I want to have the experience, Hank, of writing it that you have reading it. I want my heart to pound. I want my palms to sweat. I want to leave my office at the end of the day, not knowing what's going to happen next. That can be really hard. It isn't hard at the end of the day when you leave the office. It's yeah. hard the next morning when you come back in and you don't know how your character, you've painted that one particular character into a corner and you don't know how they're going to get out. So uh, 
I don't sit down knowing what the full story is going to be or where it's going to go. Uh, Robert Frost once said, no surprise in the writer, no surprise in the reader, no tears in the writer, no tears in the reader, no joy in the writer, no joy in the reader. So Frost really believed that you kind of had to go along with the story and see how it it developed. Uh, Someone else once said that when you're a writer, you're creating order out of chaos. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with being an outliner. That's fine. Uh, Being a pantser is hard. I tried outlining one year. Uh, my buddy Dan Brown shared the outline for Da Vinci Code with me. I, I think you and I talked about that at one point. We have, yeah. Yeah. And I wrote a, I wrote a, no I wrote a whole outline and it took all the fun, all the excitement, all the mystery out of the novel for me. And I couldn't write the book. So it's, it's mm-hmm. two, it's two schools of, of people. And, um, and again, not to, not to denigrate your friend at all. Sure, sure. Uh, yeah. I think it's, oh, I, yes, I ridicule him all the time. Don't worry. Okay. <laughs> So I I don't end up with a jumbled mess at the end where I have to outline at the end. That's just not the way it goes. It's a, it's an organic process that I liken to composing music. As far as I know, musicians don't sit down and, and outline a song. Maybe they do. Uh, I've known some musicians, they may make notes. They may have the idea for a melody, but you sit there and you play and you play and you play the the songwriters that I know here in Nashville is that they play until they, okay, that sounds right. And now, Oh, you know, it'd be good right after this. That'd be good. So are they outlining in real time? Well, they're composing. And that's, that's how I see writing a novel. It's like, this makes sense here. And I keep track as I go. All right. So I have, I do a a word document and I have it in landscape format and it's uh, it's basically like a table. So I have this, I have what happened in this chapter, the chapter number, what time of day, what location it's in. And as I write things, I drop it into this table so that I can come in and say, all right, wow, we spent four chapters with Harvath yesterday. And, you know, it's probably good that I bounce back over to the bad guy at this point and then come back to Harvath sort of a thing. So I track my progress, if you will, just so I know, all right, it's probably good to switch over to this now. But that's about as organized as it gets is me looking backwards. Where have I been up to this point? OK, now it's time to go into this. And then it's like, OK, well, where where did I leave the bad guy last time? What's he wrestling with and where do I pick it up? But it's a very, very, excuse me, organic process yeah. for me. I'm I'm sure that someone that's listening is thinking, um, does Brad really have no idea of the ultimate resolution of the story? No idea. No idea whatsoever. It's not like you you have a destination in mind, but you're figuring out how to get there. You really have. That'd ruin it for me, Hank. That'd ruin the surprise. I don't want the punchline until the very, very end. I know some people say, and I, I plan my last chapter first and it's like, Wow. Okay. So then you are forcing the story to go to your last chapter. Instead of following the story, you are forcing it towards that. Great. If that works for you, great. Again, everybody's process is different and it's not my job to force my process on anybody else. But if I did that, then I'd be forcing the story towards that point as opposed to letting the story develop organically. And I get to a point and I'm like, oh yeah, that's a really cool place to end it. So that's, that's kind of, you know, there's that one piece of advice out there that I think is great, which is, you know, if you're looking for the next thing as you're writing, think of the full four things that would probably happen at that moment and throw those out so that you keep, you know, so you're constantly surprising the reader and that kind of a thing that, that works a lot. Sometimes it doesn't work, but uh, again, I'm an organic guy. If it's organic, don't panic. I I love that idea that the thing that is, that is obvious, remove that from the table so that you can't go to the obvious solution. That's great. Um, 
when when writing do you come upon the ending and does it always because you have followed the progression of the story um you know as you write it does the uh does the solution come as sort of a uh well that's that's a uh that ending makes sense uh or have you ever been writing and been completely surprised by the way the story turned out have have you been had the rug pulled out from under you if i have i can't remember it at the moment and i can't point to the book that it happened i you know there's the whole chekhov's gun thing right if you put the gun on the stage at the beginning of the play you have to fire it by the end so there will be things that surprise me where i will find themes that I didn't realize I was weaving a theme into the book or uh, there'll be little pieces, little breadcrumbs that I didn't know I was leaving that I get to the end of the book. And I'm like, Oh my God, of course, that's exactly how it should end. It should be this. And it's, it's, you know, I thank the muse. I thank this part of the back of my brain that is putting that in the book. But oftentimes I am surprised because I don't realize how many things I kind of, um, my subconscious was working on as I was writing things. I didn't notice that until I got to the end. And I I often have a piece of paper where I will write things down. That's by my computer where I'll be like, don't forget to pay this off. Don't forget that. Don't forget this. And I'll go through and I'll make sure that I've scratched them out at the end, because these are all the threads, right? That you want to have tied off at the end of a book. You don't want to leave anything undone or unanswered. So I think that's probably the biggest surprise I get is how many things I'm blessed with to kind of bring together for the for the climax of the book and the denouement after. Gotcha. Um, you you did an interview uh, with a mutual friend of ours, Jack Carr. Uh, I think it was a couple of years ago, and mm-hmm. you guys were talking about. Um, the revision process and, and Jack was talking about, um, how, uh, you had helped him, uh, through his first novel and, and gave him some encouragement and, and some advice and you, he finished it and you said, okay, is it the best it could possibly be? And, and he said, well, let me go back. And he, you know, I think took another season and, and worked through the book. Um, and, and, but then it comes to a point where no matter how much you invest in that book, it might incrementally get better uh, just by minute, um, you know, uh, points. But at, at some point, it is what it's going to be. Um, as as a writer, how do you know when you've reached that point where it's it's the best it's going to be for, you know, majority of people. How, how do you know when you've reached that point? It's funny. I got asked this question at Thriller Fest. Uh, no surprise. I got no surprise that that'd be a question asked at a big conference of thriller writers. Sure. And I said, it's like catching an in-law right as they're about to fall off a cliff. The real challenge is knowing when to let go. <laughs> you know, and I, listen, if you're writing a book a year, that decision often gets made for you. Uh, if you're writing your first novel, you have forever to write it. Right. Yeah. But anything after your first novel, you're on a deadline. If you're under contract and things like that, and your editor's banging down your door for the book. Um, 
what I said to Jack and why I said it, it's actually based off an old story from the White House, from when Henry Kissinger was in the White House and he had an aide prepare a report for him and the aide uh, left it on Dr. Kissinger's desk. And the next morning, the aide came back and there was a post-it on there that said, you can do better than this. So the, the aide went back and added some more material, some more footnotes, a couple more tabs, put it back on Dr. Kissinger's desk. Next morning, same thing, another post-it, you can do better than this. And the this cycle repeated itself about three or four more times. He would drop it at Dr. Kissinger's office and get it back the next morning. You can do better than this. So he finally, like the fifth or sixth time revising it, actually waited till he knew Dr. Kissinger was in his office and he walked it in and handed it to Henry Kissinger and said, Dr. Kissinger, this is the absolute best I can do. And Henry Kissinger looked at him and said, well, in that case, I'll read it. (laughs) (laughs) So that was my thing with Jack Carr a little bit, which is I don't want to see it until you've got it to the point where it is the best you can do. And so he spent time polishing it because he was only going to get one chance to make a great first impression, which he did. You know, he is the most wonderful guy. He's a fabulous author. And I was introducing him to my editor and I, I knew he had what it took and I wanted him to take this great opportunity that he was about to have and knock it out of the park, which is what he did. And, you know, he, he's so gracious to me. And I said, listen, all I did was crack the door. You kicked it open. You won the day with, with, yeah. with Emily Bessler. It's that is, that is more a testament to, to Jack and his writing ability than it is to me and my ability to get my editor to go to coffee with somebody and read their manuscript. So, um, it is tough. Uh, you know, once somebody asked Vince Flynn, uh, God rest his soul, if he would ever go back and want to re-edit some of his books. And he said, no, never. It would drive me insane. And I remember having a chat with Vince. Uh, it was either, either I had a chat with Vince and this did come up or I read it because Robert Bidnoto, uh, who's also a thriller author, used to write for, I think it was the Ayn Rand magazine, The Objective the objectivist. I think he interviewed Vince for it. And so either Vince said this to me or I read it there or both. I want, I'm always trying to be careful with where I attribute stuff and the fog of memory and stuff gets (laughs) in the way. Uh, But I do remember specifically the line from Vince, because I really believe that as an author, I can constantly get better. So I spend a lot of time. This is taking your revision thing a step further. I read a a lot about the art of writing because I want to get better with my plot twist, with my character development, and things like that. And that question, uh, Vince answered by saying, listen, if you're batting 300 and you know you're going to make it into the Hall of Fame, why would you change up your swing? Why would you start tweaking your swing? Uh, And that's Vince. That's great. He's a great writer. Some people are incredibly gifted and that's just that it doesn't occur to them and that they have no desire to. That doesn't mean Vince didn't tweak and try and to. But his line was, you know, why why mess with your swing? If you're if you know, if people are happy, why do it? I just the way I was raised by my dad, a Marine, my mom, uh, who is a flight attendant, became an entrepreneur. I always want to be better. Their thing was, if you're going to push a broom, you be the best damn broom pusher there is. And you never take for granted the people that pay you to push that broom. You always want to you always want them to feel like, aren't we lucky? We've got that guy pushing the broom because he takes it seriously, does a great job. I take it so seriously, Hank, because 
you can go out and make another 15 bucks, 15 bucks for an ebook or the 30 bucks for a hardcover. You can go make that money back up. But what you can't make up is the time that you invest in a Brad Thor novel. That's a finite commodity, your time. The time you spend reading one of my novels is time you could spend at work with your friends, with your family, playing golf, woodworking, whatever your thing is. So if you're entrusting me with your most precious commodity, I want to give you the best I'm capable of. So I'm constantly trying to tweak and all that kind of stuff. And to bring it back around to revisions, I am, I I like to revise my stuff. I want it to be as good as it's possible. And my editor has to almost pry it out of my hands to get it because I'm constantly, and I'm a perfectionist. So I could have three years to revise and I'm still going to find things. Oh, this sentence would sound better like this. So you just have to find a point where you're comfortable to let it go, or you're never going to let it go. You could revise for the rest of your life. And that's, you you know, we can't do that as, as writers. If you want to be a working writer, you can't just continually revise. Yeah. I heard um, someone say a while back uh, that they don't read series characters because uh, and, and, and their reasoning is what really got me was because there is no um, there, there are no ultimate um, stakes at play because if Scott Harvath can't be killed because we know next summer we're going to have Harvath book 23, Mm -hmm. then, then what, you know, uh, then what good is it? And, and I thought that was kind of a, a, uh, this isn't your outliner friend who said this is, (laughs) (laughs) um, but, but I was like, what, what a, you know, if, if, um, if everything in life doesn't have these ultimate, um, uh, I, I disagree with this person, Hank. I, I really do. Uh, look at the success of Indiana Jones. Look at the success of James Bond. Look at the success of the Avengers, right? right. You are constantly pitting up. Look at the story. Uh, look at the Rocky stories. You know, yeah. you're taking likable protagonists. You are pitting them against ostensibly insurmountable odds and they are achieving and you want to see that maybe somewhere in the back of your mind, you know, uh, but in all fairness, you never know when somebody's going to end a series character. You don't know if this is the last book that maybe they are going to meet their end, but as long as we, this is what makes a hero is someone who is able to win against just incredible odds stacked against them. This is what we love. We love the idea that if if they can hit these incredible highs, if they can struggle against this, what looks like an insurmountable obstacle, there is that part of us that that we have a certain amount of empathy there, that there is this, if they can do it, I can do it in my life kind of a thing. And I think yeah. that's why we like these characters. And uh, It's interesting because I never intended to write a franchise character. I liked the Michael Crichton books growing up, and I loved the idea of being able to have a new protagonist and a new cast of characters with every single book. So when I went to pitch my second book uh, to Emily Bessler, my editor at Simon & Schuster, she was like, whoa, whoa, where's Harvath in this? I'm like, it's not a Harvath book. I said, Lines of Lucerne, my first one, that's Harvath. Now we're going to move on. And she goes, you can't do that. (laughs) She goes, we got such incredible feedback on Harvath. Readers love him. They want to go for another adventure with him. And I'm like, I want to write somebody new. And she said, wait a second, let me ask you. 
when you have a character that you've enjoyed reading from another thriller author and you pick up their next book and you see it's that same character, aren't you excited about going to take another ride with them, go on another adventure with them? Haven't they become like kind of part of your family? And I'm like, yeah, I guess so. And she goes, even if the story is set somewhere that maybe you'd never want to travel to, don't you want to go just to see how they get out of this one? And I'm like, yeah. So my editor actually was the one that steered me in the direction of making Harbath a franchise character. I'd never intended to bring him back and uh, it's paid off. She was absolutely right. Harbath has been very, very uh, exciting to write over these many years. And the fact that I'm still writing him and fans look forward to a new Harvath book every summer, uh, I think puts uh, uh, puts. I, I have no idea who said it that said that the whole thing about franchise characters. I just say, I think it just puts the lie to that. I think, I think people love franchise characters. I yeah. think they become a member of their family. I know that's the way it is for me as a reader. Well, and nobody was buying tickets to see Walter Randall in the temple of doom, you know? Right. Exactly. Yeah. You know. Lou Gibson next door yeah. neighbor in the dial of destiny. Will Lou make right. it? <laughs> right. Adios, I, Lou. I there's the, and isn't that why we read fiction? Because we, we want the good guys to win. I, I, yeah. We, we want to go along the journey and, and we want to, you know, for there to be hair raising action and them to barely make it. But we want exactly. them to make it. And if you're looking at your fiction um, because you want to see someone fail and you want to see the hero die at the end, maybe you got bigger problems than you know. it's it's like the literary equivalent of a snuff film. I mean, right. what kind of sick bastard wants to see the good guy get it in the end? <laughs> right. I mean, this person needs therapy. Whoever said that? I'm going to uh, I'm going to go yes. on record. Whoever said that needs therapy. Yes. yes. Heavy therapy. That's right. That's right. Um, we are in the midst right now of uh, some Hollywood strikes, writers and mm -hmm. actors both. Yeah. And I know that there, you know, was some potential news for uh, Harvath to come to the screen. And we all want mm -hmm. to see that. But um, this is a unique opportunity, I think, for readers and, and for writers and publishers right now, because we're not going to get any new entertainment you know, the, this this late summer fall is is going to be pretty slim, you know, for, for mm -hmm. TV and stuff. So this is a great time for people to dig into a series character. And yeah. um, how do you, you know, when you see lemons like the, the what's going on in Hollywood, how do you uh, as a writer look to make lemonade? Well, it's a little, it's a little tough for us because we're at a studio. We have an amazing team and, uh, the last component we were putting in place was a great writer and we got one of the best in Hollywood, one of the best writers. And so we got everything put together. We got what's called the take the pitch and we were ready to go out to everybody you can think of, you know, HBO, Netflix, Amazon prime, Apple TV, we're all ready to go. And then the writer strike happened and we had to stop because the writer is the, is the one along with uh, the producers that makes the pitch that tries to sell the project. And so we had to pause because of the writing, uh, the writer strike and our writer was Manny Cotto and Manny had written uh, most of the 24 episodes uh, with Kiefer Sutherland. Manny gets Harvath. He was a Harvath fan. He 
really, really understood Harvath, understood that world, could write it like nobody else. I mean, it was an absolute home run for us to get Manny. Uh, unfortunately, Manny passed away two weeks ago from pancreatic cancer. I thought I and, heard that. Oh, yeah. Bad news. It, yeah, it's terrible news. We feel horrible for Manny's wife and his kids and his nieces and nephews and his friends. Uh, they are suffering more than we ever will. It's a professional loss for us. It, it, nobody's going to fill Manny's shoes. There is nobody like Manny Cotto, never has been, never will be. Uh, so, but I would have rather, you know, Manny decided he didn't want to do it and he lived, you know, in, instead of being in his 60s to being in his early hundreds before he shuffled off his mortal coil. So it's very sad that we lost Manny. Uh, so now, you know, we're at a studio, everything's ready to go. Now we don't have Manny. So what we are going to need is another writer who gets Harvath and yeah. as, uh, as well as Manny did. Uh, hopefully we got a lot of fans in Hollywood. So that's kind of another thing too, is you want to find a great writer and either they can read really fast or they've been a long time Harvath fan and they understand yeah. who he is and that kind of a thing. So uh, the way the strike rules go, we are not allowed to talk to any writers until the strike is over. So we can't even say, Hey, go read, you know, deadfall Thor's new book. So as soon as the strike is over, you know, we can talk about maybe hiring you. So we're not allowed to even do that much. So we have to wait for the strike to be completed and then we can start soliciting writers. So we were in the starting blocks. We were in the starting gate, ready to go. Now we're out of the blocks and out of the gate and, you know, Kentucky Derby, we're back in the paddock, right? We're back yeah. in the stall in the paddock and we've got to wait to come out again. Again. And we'll find somebody. We'll find somebody. It's it's sad that Manny's gone. Just a great guy. Great story about his family leaving Cuba. He's just an American success story. And again, we'll never replace him. Those shoes will never be filled. Yeah. Um, some probably some of the the most terrible writing advice I've ever heard is to write what you know. Um, and, you know, thinking about Deadfall specifically and then some other stories that you've written, I would imagine that you are not a popular character in Moscow. Um have you have yeah. you been to Moscow? Have you been to, no. to Russia? No, no. I, I have friends that yeah, no. And in fact, I said on another program the other day, somebody's like, you know, you write so aggressively against the Kremlin and against uh, the Russian government. Are you afraid? And I said, listen, they're never going to waste a minute on me. Goodbye. I said, and Putin can kiss my ass. I do not care. He can kiss it. Um, but no, I'm never going over to Russia. I just I just think, you know, there'd be a bag of heroin found in my dresser drawer in my hotel room and I'd be locked up. Right. Uh, it, it, and unlike Brittany Griner, it would be a drug that I did not transport knowingly into the country or I don't, I can't remember what she said. It was hers, but I don't know if she forgot it was in her bag or whatever. Yeah. There's another guy that's been locked up for pot over there. It'd just be too easy to frame me and, and just, you know, stick me in a gulag and then trade me back at one point. It'd just be so yeah. obvious. So no, I have no desire to go. So if I can't go to one of these places, Hank, I want to talk to somebody who operated there. So well, either was, you were an intelligence officer. Yeah, because they they paid attention to the details. They'll give you those color items that most people wouldn't notice, but are really cool to read in a book. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, the the and and that brings me to um, because you do bring out those little color, um, the, the little bits and pieces. I, th I think some people um, 
don't understand what it is to to have immersive details in a story. It's not that you need to describe everything that that the character sees, hears, smells, um, but you do need to pick out the little visceral pieces that that the reader then subconsciously fills in the rest of the picture themselves. Um, how do you decide what those little details are when, when you're asking someone, you know, g- give me kind of the lay of the land when you, as, as the writer who's hearing this from someone, how do you pick out the things that you know are going to be those things that, that color in? It's a great question. So I'll tell you, I'll tell you where I messed up and then I'll tell you where I learned something. So two examples. Okay. So I was doing Code of Conduct several books back, and I was setting it in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Uh, and uh, I got network in, networked into a guy who, a military guy, a special operations guy who had been over there and had done some stuff there. And so he agreed to a phone call with me and he said, okay, Thor, what are you looking for? And I'm like, I don't know. I'm looking for some color details. And he's like, this is going to be a very short phone call. You need to ask me specific questions or I'm not going to be a very direct guy, right? Which you probably want in, in somebody that has to make split second decisions, life or death decisions in the field. He was very polite, but direct Thor, you need to ask me specific questions. I was like, humana, 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 humana. You know, I was doing the old, uh, uh, Eddie Murphy making fun of, uh, I think Lamont Cranston. Uh, but I I said, okay, just sprung from my head. I'm like, uh, I don't know. Uh, does everybody have the same bicycle over there. It sounded coming out of my mouth, like the dumbest question in the world. And the guy paused and I'm like, "Ah, it is the dumbest question in the world. He's about to end the phone call. And that didn't happen. He goes, Oh my God. He goes, yeah, they all do drive the ride the same bicycle. I'm like, are you serious? He goes, yeah, they all have the same black bicycle and it's called a black Mamba. And I'm like, why is it called a black Mamba? And he said, well, the bike is black. So you get black there. He said, but the tires are such that when they drive down the dirt road, they leave a track that looks like the tra- trail left by the snake, the black Mamba. Wow. And I was like, oh my God, that's cool. And I put that in the book. And then I heard from people that were like, Thor must've been in the Democratic Republic of Congo because <laughs> only people who've been there know about this bicycle. So that was a, that was a cool thing talking to people who have been there and noticed the details. The, the other thing where I learned something, I told you that I like to read books about writing and, uh, in one of those books over the last couple of years, this is a very new thing I've started doing that I didn't do a lot before, but now I do it. I try not to be too heavy handed, but it was about scent. So you mentioned smells and how things smells mm-hmm. smell. I, I never used to really put that in the book unless it was like, you know, the way the smoke smelled or something that was burning because you were burning like old, uh, you know, film negatives or something like that. And there was a scent to that. Now I realize that scent is very powerful, even in, even in written form. And if you can say, like, I have something about this book where Harvath's in an, uh, in an old kind of Russian style, like a Dhaka, a cottage. And I describe how the scent reminds him of his grandparents' lake house. So scent can be very powerful. So that is a detail thing that I've only learned recently. And I'm 22 books in the Harvest series, 23 books overall into my career. And it was never anything that was at the front of my mind to include. And now it is. So there you go. It's it's so funny because scent is one of those things that, um, and, and, I, I've I've really been picking uh, up on this lately is that you don't need all of the details. You just need a visceral detail. And right. 
and the readers will fill in and and attribute all of that to you when when it was you provided a, a small detail and but you gave them a a bridge to mm-hmm. kind of paint the rest of the picture it's um another speaking of of details that you included um the challenge and response code yeah. words that yeah. uh how did that come about <laughs> So uh, there was challenge and response that happened in World War II because there were certain uh, sounds that the Nazis couldn't make. So if you watch, perfect example, if you watch Saving Private Ryan, when American soldiers run up on other American soldiers or allied soldiers, there was this challenge and response, flash, thunder, uh, because the Germans couldn't say flash uh, or thunder, thunder. You know, you put your mind in an Austrian mindset like uh, Schwarzenegger and you would not hear Schwarzenegger say thunder and say thunder. Uh, So that was something that existed in World War II. And as I did the research for deadfall, I found out that the Ukrainians have a word uh, for a type of bread that they make in the fireplace, a peasant bread, that it has a sound in it that runs. Russian speakers, native Russian speakers can't reproduce. And so in the real world, outside my fiction, the Ukrainians challenge people they don't know in and around the battlefield to pronounce that word for Ukrainian peasant bread and the Russians can't do it. So these are the kind of like little things I dig up in my research to to make the book interesting and to really give it that verisimilitude uh, where you're like, wow, you know, okay. I feel like I'm there sort of a thing. Yeah. Deadfall is available everywhere. Now go visit your local bookstore, pick up a, a hardback copy of it. Um, if you don't have a great local bookstore, we'll put links to it in the show notes of this episode. Uh, also, the Audible audiobook is available now. I haven't listened to the audiobook yet, even though it is in my Audible cart now. And uh, this weekend, I'm going to dig into the audio and relive this book all over again. Um, do you ever listen to your audiobooks, Brad? I do. I do. Armin Schultz is a Broadway trained actor. He's great. He's been doing him forever. And just a really quick, funny story about uh, the audiobook narrator. Uh, super handsome guy, tall, really handsome. In fact, um, I've got some new video of him doing the audio version of the book that I'm going to post on uh, on social media probably this week. Anyway, so he's an actor. He doesn't just do Broadway plays. He does television commercials. OK, so I do listen to them. So I know he's the voice of Scott Harvath. So when I hear Harvath, I hear his voice. So I had the TV on in my kitchen and I was scrambling eggs one morning and all of a sudden Harvath started talking to me, asking me if I knew what level my cholesterol was. <laughs> and I was like, why is Scott Harvath concerned about my cholesterol? And it took me a second. I'm like, that's coming from the TV. And I looked up and there was Armin Schultz. Army was in a white lab coat standing in front of a mirror in Central Park where people were walking up and seeing their cholesterol numbers reflected in the mirror. So it was a for some drug commercial or whatever, but it was very funny. So the answer is yes, I do listen to my audio versions. I love them. And he is a fabulous, fabulous narrative I, uh, narrator. I love Army Schultz. That's hilarious. Yeah. Um, and I, I love what he does with the character. And there's just something about having these characters come alive. Um, you know, it, living in the 2020s is an amazing thing. We get to experience yeah. the book by reading it. And then we get to have a, another experience listening to a, a great actor 
you know, portray the book. So, and by the way, I want to put him in the TV show. That's one of the, he's such a great actor that I, the decisions will be made by the studio and the director and all that kind of stuff. But I would love to just find like as an Easter egg for fans uh, of the audiobooks, I want to find a role where he comes and says something, you know, like something funny where only if you listen to the audiobooks, would you know who that is? Cause I want people to be surprised. Oh my God, wait, that's actually Harvest real voice. So I want to do that as an Easter egg. That's something I'm hoping to do because I'm really trying to be involved in the production. I'm not telling them how to make the stuff. Hollywood does not want the author to tell them how to make it, but they are buying something equivalent to the Marvel universe by getting 23, uh, 22 books from me. So I do want to see if we can, if they'll be amenable to putting in these Easter eggs. And I think by having army, who's a fabulous actor come yeah. in and do his voice. I think it'd just be another reason for fans to tune in you know what i mean that i would take the time to work with the hollywood people to do some special things just for them to say thank you for being longtime readers of the series and listeners your website is a great resource for readers lots and lots of info there Uh, where can they find you online to follow along with everything going on thank you yeah we take a lot of pride in putting up behind the scenes stuff about the books here are the here's where i got my research here are you know, we just put up something with the film and the uh, the movies and books that are actually mentioned in deadfall that some of the characters are reading or watching and so my website is brad b-r-a-d thor t-h-o-r.com excellent deadfall available everywhere now go grab it uh brad Thanks as always. Ah, oh, it's always a pleasure. Thanks for having me, Hank. That's our episode for today. There's so much more to come as we talk to authors about the craft of writing, but also the business of publishing. Be sure to subscribe to the Storycraft Cafe podcast in your favorite podcast app so that you never miss an episode. The Storycraft Cafe is made possible by Dabble. Writing a book is challenging. Your writing tool should not be. Dabble is an easy-to-use online writing tool packed with helpful features that allow beginning novelists and published authors to create amazing stories. Visit us at DabbleWriter.com and start your free trial today. Thanks for listening.